This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Despite renewed GDP growth and other positive signs, the U.S. isn't out of the woods yet, says Wharton finance professor Franklin Allen. In fact, the country could be heading into a double-dip scenario that tips it back into a recession. That depends on how a number of factors play out in the coming months or even years, not only in the U.S., but also around the world. Global interest rate policies, property markets, and public deficits will all demand attention, Alan notes in a recent interview with Knowledge at Wharton. Uh, lots of experts seem to think that the U.S. recession ended a few months ago or sometime recently. Well, what do you think about that? I think that they're probably right, and it did. The question is whether we're going to have a double dip and it goes back into recession. And what were the real signs that, that we've come out of it, do you think? Well, GDP is growing, which is the main the main thing. And the financial markets are doing much better, obviously, although I think there's a, a serious question as how much of that is due to the actions of the Fed in terms of quantitative easing and uh, printing a lot of money. So, um, but but that is a, is a good side potentially. And then uh, a number of other good things, property market seems to be stabilizing and unemployment seems to at least be not going down as fast as it was in recent months, which is a very good sign. And you mentioned the risk of a double dip. What what are the factors that could drive us back into into trouble? So I think we are in such an interdependent world that what happens in the rest of the world is going to be very important for us. And in Asia, there are there's good news and bad news. The good news is they seem to be doing okay, but the bad news is that they're also having problems with bubbles. For example, in Singapore in the third quarter, property prices went up 16, that's 1.6%, which is a staggering amount given the state of the world economy and also given that Singapore Singapore's economy was was quite badly affected by the by the financial crisis. So when you go there, what people say is that there are a lot of people coming in with suitcases of cash from China and from Indonesia. And I think that this is just a sign of of part of the problem that we're facing in the world today, which is that central banks have just gone wild in terms of the amount of credit that they're providing and the amount of liquidity that they're providing. And this has, has stopped the crisis much as it did in 2003 to 2004. But the problem is, is it's sowing seeds for the future crisis. And I think that, that that's the real worry. And that's why if it happens quicker this time, we may have a double dip. Now, in the U.S., the Fed seems to be uh, uh, winding down some of the programs it, it put into effect, uh, buying bonds and that sort of thing. Is is that a, is, is it the right time for that sort of move or premature or too late or... So my own view is that they should have done it. They shouldn't have done it in the first place. So in that sense, it's too late. But the, I think that it, there will be an issue when they start removing these these um, programs, and then presumably at some point they're going to start raising interest rates, and that's going to raise an issue of quite 
how strong is the financial system? At the moment, they're effectively not only supporting it in in the ways of that they have done during the crisis still, but they're also, by having such low interest rates, effectively providing a huge subsidy to the, particularly to the banks, because the interest rates that they would normally be paying to us as depositors, they're able to effectively keep because the, the rates they're lending at have not come down nearly as much as uh, the short-term rates. And this is why the banks, one of the reasons the banks are doing so well. When the interest rates start going up again, it's going to cause a change and it'll be interesting to see how strong indeed they are. Why is it with so much of this support for the banks that people are still complaining it's hard to borrow money? I think there's always an issue in these credit crunches of which side of the market the problems are coming from? Is it that people don't want to borrow or is it that people don't want to lend? And usually it's a lot of both. But the problem is there always is a group that does want to borrow. And the problem is that's the group the banks don't want to lend to because they're the ones in trouble. That's why they need to borrow. And that's why I think we always get these stories that they can't borrow. But you know, surely I'm sure there are many firms that, that do want to that can't, but quite how many firms would actually want to go out and invest and borrow large amounts of money in the current climate is questionable, I think. It's just not a good time for most firms to be borrowing and investing. And then another effect of the low interest rates has been to keep mortgage rates extraordinarily low. I mean, they're really at practically record lows and have been there for months and months. Is the housing market a key to the U.S. recovery? And what do you see happening there? Well, again, this is part of the bubbles question. They've put rates so low that that I think that they have... They have uh, helped the housing market a lot, and that's why the prices have stopped going down and in some cases started going up again. But again, the question is whether this is sustainable. When rates start going up again, what's going to happen? And I I think that this is a big issue. This is, again, part of the problem as to why we might see a double dip. And also one of the the big issues that really hasn't been – on the front burner recently, but is really lingering there is the deficit. And uh, what it's enormous now. And uh, what do you see as as its role? And and how important is it to wrestle the deficit down? So the conventional view, I think, is that uh, we need to do something about the deficit, but maybe not quite yet, maybe in a couple of years or something like that. I think there's some truth to that, but I do think it is very worrying, both in the medium term and the long term. We still have all the long-term problems of the baby boom generation and medical expenses and uh, Social Security. Social Security probably curable by a few fixes. Medical expenses, I think, is going to be the big one. And that that is a big problem. And it's now compounded with all these other problems uh, of the uh, recession and low tax revenues and so forth. And so we do need to start worrying about that. And as interest rates go up, of course, it's going to be much more costly for the government to fund these. And since our debt is now beginning to go up to levels near 
100% of GDP in, in a fairly short time. Every percent on the interest rate means another percent of GDP that we've got to pay out in interest. So this, this is the, a big part of the problem too, I think. I wonder if you could just briefly walk us through sort of a primer on why it is that deficits matter. We, we, we all sort of accept that. But this kind of step-by-step cause and effect of, of how, how it influences ultimately our lives is hard for people to follow. You know, why does it matter? So it matters because future generations have to bear the burden of this debt. Now, if you think of the real interest rate as being about 2.5% in the long run, even if you borrow 100% of GDP, you're only paying 2.5% in real terms. So the question is, is that such such a big burden? And I think, you know, as long as you, you keep it, you, you cap it and you keep it at relatively low levels, it's fine. But the, the problem is that when you put in place these spending programs and so on, they're not usually temporary, they usually tend to become permanent. And once you start running deficits of 5 to 10% of GDP or more, it becomes very difficult to bring that down. And within a few years, you're well over 100% of GDP. And then you start having this problem, which we're beginning to see in Greece at the moment, which is once you get to 120, 130% of GDP, then there becomes the question, well, will they actually stabilize it and maybe pay it down in the long run, hopefully by, by growing so it becomes small? And the problem is that there's a slippery slope there, which is if people start worrying that you're going to inflate it away, then bond rates start going up and then it becomes a burden because you have to keep borrowing more and more to pay the interest. And it's a very slippery slope whereby suddenly the whole thing becomes unmanageable and people stop lending. And this is what happened in many, many countries historically. And we're fortunately still some way away from that, I think. But if you look in Europe at the moment, as I said, Greece is right at the edge of this precipice. Uh, Moody's didn't downgrade them that much. S&P and Fitch did. Moody's wanted to wait and see uh, what they would do. They're submitting their plan to the EU for cutting the deficit. But if people in the bond markets think that it's not just not credible what they're proposing, then we will see a bigger spike in the default in the spreads over German bonds. And that starts to become very painful, and they could well fall down this precipice in the next few months or next couple of years. And then we'll see what how painful it is for a sovereign country to default. I think the UK also potentially has problems. They have a big deficit. They've already put tax rates up. Whether they can put them up more, we'll see. But uh, they may well be a run on the pound because of that. So I think there are problems out there which are related to these debt problems. And these recent stories we've seen about obviously the problems in Abu Dhabi and uh, and Greece, uh, the downgrading of its sovereign debt. These are not just little isolated cases, but they are uh, indicators of bigger problems that are lurking out there. So I think the, the original problem in Dubai was a wake-up call that sovereigns 
well, sovereign entities, which essentially what happened in Dubai, can default. And we need to be very careful and look at this. And what happened after Dubai was people started looking Greece very slowly. Spreads went back up to where they were at the beginning of 2009. They came down then because the German finance minister said that, that they wouldn't allow a default. I doubt now whether the Greeks would be bailed out by other EU countries, in particular the Germans. And this is why it's back on back on the agenda again. And do you think we've seen uh, the worst of the Dubai world story, or is there still more problems to come out of that? It was interesting. One of the, uh, the people in my class, uh, who I think is from that area, said that what was happening was that the the other emirate countries were trying to teach Dubai a lesson. And I think that's a large part of what was happening. So as long as oil stays at the kinds of levels it's at at the moment, there's no long run problem there. There may be some problem between Dubai and um, Abu Dhabi and, and the other emirates, but there isn't a, a fundamental problem there, I don't think. So that's not the kind of thing that's going to ripple across the world and uh, trigger bigger problems. Not unless well. oil prices go down. If they do, then we'll be back there very quickly. But I, I think we've seen the ripple to Greece, and the, then the, the real focus is now on Greece for the moment. Uh, back, back in the U.S., um, over the weekend, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke said that uh, he felt that uh, looking back over the recent crisis, that it, it was lax regulation allowing uh, poor underwriting standards on mortgages and things like that were more of a cause of the crisis than the Fed's persistently low interest rate policy from in the early part of the decade. Do you agree with him? No, I don't agree with him. <laughs> I think that they are fighting a rearguard action to avert blame for the crisis because there are a lot of things happening in Congress which would take responsibilities and power away from them. Uh, if, if one takes that view. The problem is that they're, they're culpable both ways because they were also overseeing many of the banks that, that did this underwriting of mortgages and so on. So uh, I think they have a difficult one to argue there. But my own view is still that it's uh, it's it's low interest rates that, that were the primary problem. And I think the main the main evidence for that is that it wasn't just in the US that we had these problems. So if you look at Spain, Spain had very good banking regulation. They didn't have irresponsible mortgages in the sense of, of low underwriting standards. And yet they've had exactly the same kinds of problems, but even worse because the bubble was even bigger there. And although the ECB didn't set low interest rates in an absolute sense, they did in a relative sense. And the interest rates there were too low, given the huge boom that was going on. And that was the real problem. So I think if you look at other parts of the world, and you look back at history, then one can see that low interest rates are a big part of these bubble boom and bust problems problems. Now, despite a lot of the uh, lingering worries and, and problems we've seen, we, we have seen a remarkable resurgence in the U.S. stock market and in some el elsewhere in the world as well. Is that mostly behind us now, or do you think that that can continue? So my own view is that this is, again, part of the problem of having loose monetary policy. When you have that, it tends to 
boost the stock market and create bubbles. And I think this is, in my view, what's going on in the stock market now. There's just too much easy money. And when they start tightening, I think we'll find out whether the stock market really is boosted by future prospects or whether it's a monetary phenomenon. Most economists deny that there's a link between monetary policy and asset prices, but I think this is going to be the big, the big question going forward. Some of the indicators, like price-to-earnings ratios, though, are, are not so far out of line with historical norms now, or, or is that right? No, that's true. They, they, the, the earnings are doing well. But again, um, I think one has, one has to look at, at the monetary uh, phenomenon. Again, the question is, what, what is going to happen going forward in the economy? And uh, are these earnings sustainable? We will find this all out going forward. Now, I'd like to move on to China, if we can. Uh, there have been a number of stories recently about uh, sort of the rebound in China. They seem to have emerged from this uh, faster and, and in a more healthy way than many other countries. Do you see it that way? And what, what has caused that, if that's the case? So China has one or has two huge advantages. The first is it's in a very strong fiscal position. So it has relatively low government debt compared to most of the other countries, uh, large large countries or large economies in the world. And this gives it the power to, to go out and borrow uh, large amounts and to spend it. The second is it still has tremendous control over the economy. So it still owns a large part of industry. It owns the banks and it owns many other things. So this means that they can they can stimulate the economy easily. Now, one of the issues there, though, is the property prices in Beijing and Shanghai are going up at a fairly fast pace. And one of the questions again is, are they just causing a bubble? And if it bursts, are they going to have a problem? And I think this again is a big issue there. I think they need to move away from just building infrastructure in terms of roads and bridges and all those things, which, which is needed in many parts of the countries. But they need to slow down slightly on that. And they need to worry more about building human infrastructure in terms of education and health and all those th kinds of things, which are still somewhat below par in many parts of China. If uh, much of the resurgence in China is due to the way their system operates, a centralized system, are there any lessons uh, f that the West can learn from the way the Chinese have responded to this problem? So this is a very interesting question. My own view is that it would be good if we had some, for example, some publicly owned banks that might compete with the private sector. Many countries that have crises frequently have these kinds of banks so that when things go bad again, it, you don't have to rely on the central bank to become a commercial bank and start making credit decisions. I think one of the reasons China did so well is that they, they own their big banks and they were able to direct them to do things which you can't really do in a privately owned financial system. And I don't think we should go and replicate the Chinese, but maybe move a tiny little bit towards that. So there's some sort of backup system. There's a backup system. Now, let's look at Japan. Japan doesn't seem to be resurging uh, in the same way. What is the problem there? 
So Japan has has uh, many strengths and also many weaknesses. They have a huge amount of debt outstanding from the 1990s and uh, the OOs. This is going to be a drag on them. If if interest rates start going up, they're going to have a huge interest bill. The moment's very low because they're near zero percent interest rates. So that's one big problem. The other problem is that the reason they've been doing well in recent years is because China did well, and uh, so the fact that China was hit hurt the Japanese badly. Uh, they haven't managed to to do as well from the current resurgence of China. And I think that's that's a problem for them. I think they also have a long-term problem. If you look at companies like Sony, for example, they now have to compete very strongly with the Korean companies. And at the moment, the Korean companies like Samsung and LG are doing better than them. So that they've got a long-term structural shift. And they also have political problems, I think. Uh, this transfer of um, power from um, the Liberal Democratic Party to the new government is not something that they're used to in Japan, and I think that's causing a lot of uncertainty, and we'll see how, how that plays out. But it's not even clear really where the power lies in uh, Japan at the moment, whether it's with Azawa, who's the head of the, the party, um, or it's with the prime minister. And I think all these uncertainties make things difficult for the Japanese economy. And then looking at the rest of Asia outside of China and Japan, what, 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 do you see uh, uh, things getting better or worse, or where are the problem areas potentially? So I think it's very mixed as to where you're talking about. So Korea, I think, is doing very well. Uh, they've, they've survived this uh, crisis among the best of, of all countries, I would say, especially given that they have the kind of export profile that Japan and Germany have, but they haven't been nearly as badly hit. Uh, I think Australia is doing very well. They're already raising interest rates. Uh, they're benefiting from how China is doing and the the big infrastructure projects that China's undertaking. So they're doing well. Some of the other countries have long-running problems like the Philippines and not doing so well. But by and large, Asia is doing okay, and hopefully they'll continue to do okay. So worldwide, if we can sum up in, in such grandiose terms, uh, I, I take it you see lots of positive signs here and there, but are still pretty worried about I'm what could happen I in think, the next year. I think there's potentially bumpy roads ahead. There are negatives in the U.S. There are negatives in Europe. Asia, there are positives, but a few negatives too. So I, I think our world outlook will now change somewhat because what's happened over the last 30 to 40 years or, or more in the US is we haven't had crises. And I think that world is now gone. And, and the question is when will we have the next crisis? Is it going to be five years or 10 years or when? And we're back in a world where we're not immune to it. I'm not sure people have adjusted to that. What they seem to think is that there was some problem still in the mortgage industry and that caused the crisis. But you know, one of the things that I think we should 
learn is that crises are something that have been around for centuries and they'll continue to be around. It's just that now they're back with us in a way they haven't been. And uh, I would recommend this book by Carmen Reinhardt and Kenneth Roboff, which is called This Time It's Different, Eight Centuries of Financial Folly. And what they do is to go back and document for many centuries how frequent these crises are, not in terms of being a year-to-year event, but being a decade-to-decade event. And every time people think, oh, now it's different, and that's where the title comes from, but what happens is that, that they, at least to date, have always come back, and it hasn't been different. Well, we won't look forward to the next crisis, but we'll look forward to talking to you again as soon as we can. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jeff. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.